0: This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio program. I'm your host Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me in the second and third segments of today's program is Dr. Chris Martinson. Dr. Martinson is a returning guest here to the program. He is the author of Crash Course as well as co-authoring his most recent book, Prosper, And I know you're going to uh, enjoy our time with Dr. Martinson. We're going to talk to him about all the zombie companies that exist in the United States today and what it means for you. We're also going to talk about the massive amounts of debt that are now accumulating in the private and public sector. In fact, I want to talk to you about government debt in this segment because the U.S. government During the first two months of the fiscal year, which are October and November, the U.S. government ran a $343 billion deficit. $343 billion is what the government spent that it didn't cover by incoming revenues. Now, some of you who are listening to this show are undoubtedly old enough to remember The Bill Clinton campaign rallying cry, it's the economy, stupid, to take advantage of what was then a bit of a floundering economy. Now, today's economy is good by all outward measures, including the unemployment rate, although there is a looming issue that not yet one politician, at least from my observation, has yet chosen to address. And that problem is the out-of-control federal spending and debt accumulation. Seems to me we could use a campaign rallying cry that says, it's the debt, stupid, because there will be consequences. And I want to talk about those consequences a bit in this segment and how you might be affected. rather. And there are those. Maybe you've talked to one recently one of these people recently, I should say, who would like to have us believe that one party is more to blame than another for this debt and deficit problem. However, history and the numbers tell us otherwise. This is really not, in my view, a political issue. It is a monetary issue. See, ever since the debt between the U.S. dollar and gold has been eliminated or was eliminated, and that was by President Nixon back in 1971, this debt monster has simply grown, and here's why. Now, while I'm not necessarily a gold standard advocate, the nice thing about gold as money is that there is a limited supply of gold. And when gold is money, there's also a limited supply of money, which means money tends over time to appreciate in value. And the money that you save from your labors or from investing properly goes up in value. It gains in purchasing power. Well, that has not been the case since the dollar and gold are no longer directly linked. You see, without that link, you don't have any way to restrain political spending. Now, if I just take a quick look at the president's, and I did this uh, really as part of the January newsletter that I publish, just took a look at the debt, the, the federal national debt, when President Nixon left office, when he resigned, it was at $475 billion. Two years later, when President Ford left office, it was $600 billion. That's an increase in two years of just 26%. When Carter left office in 1980, it was $908 billion. That's an increase of 51%. Reagan saw the national debt rise to $2.6 trillion, which is an increase of 187%. George Bush won, saw the debt rise to over $4 trillion. Clinton to $5.6 trillion. Bush to $10 trillion. Obama nearly doubled that to $20 trillion, and now we're at $22.7 trillion at the end of fiscal year 2019. And as I just pointed out, the U.S. government ran a $343 billion deficit in the first two months of the year. And last year, the deficit surpassed a trillion. Now, federal spending over a year rose 7%. Tax receipts grew only 3%. You don't have to be a math major to figure out that is not going to work. Now, a past guest here on RLA Radio, Mr. John Malden, who writes a terrific newsletter every week that I would would encourage everybody to, to check out. It's free and it's insightful. It's called Thoughts from the Frontline. Mr. Malden wrote a piece on this about a week and a half ago titled, A Crisis Has Already Begun. And some of the numbers that Mr. Malden puts forth in this piece, are staggering, and they will have consequences. Now, he points out that the U.S. government ran a $343 billion deficit in the first two months of the year, which I talked about at the opening of this segment. Now, there are those that are walking around saying, no problem, people will always buy Uncle Sam's debt. U.S. treasuries are the gold standard, if you'll excuse the term. But that, as Mr. Malden says, is unfortunately not true. Mr. Malden, in his piece, points out that foreign buyers on whom we've long depended to buy U.S. debt are no longer buying it. In October, selling of U.S. notes and bonds continued by a net of $16.7 billion. That means that there was $16.7 billion more in U.S. notes and bonds sold than were purchased. Year-to-date, that number is almost $100 with much of it being driven by liquidations from the Chinese and the Japanese. Now, if you turn the clock back just a few years to 2011 and 2012, foreigners were buying $400 billion a year in U.S. government debt, and now they're dumping it. Now, Mr. Malden says the Fed now has also become a big part of the monetization process via its purchases of T-bills, which also drives banks into buying notes. The Fed's balance sheet is now $335 billion higher than it was in September. Let's do some math. The deficit in the first two months of the year was $343 billion. The Fed's balance sheet is now $335 billion higher. Pretty similar, aren't they? And as Mr. Malden said, again, the Fed wants to define what it's doing. Market participants view this as quantitative easing for, or money printing for the fourth time, and are expecting the same asset price inflation or increasing stock prices that comes along with quantitative easing programs. Now, Mr. Malden goes on to talk about the fact that since China, since Japan are no longer eagerly gobbling up U.S. debt, that things will have to change. Mr. Malden says, I know some think China or other countries are opting out of U.S. Treasury markets for political reasons, but that's not the reason. It's simply business. The math just doesn't work. Especially when President Trump is explicitly, explicitly saying he wants the dollar to weaken and interest rates to go even lower. Mr. Malden asks a very good question. If you're in country X, why would you do that trade? You might do it if you were in a country like Argentina or Venezuela, where the currency is toast anyway. But why would you do it if you're in Europe, Japan, or China? Any of the rest of the world. It's now a coin toss. The Fed began cutting rates in July. Funding pressures emerged weeks later. Is that a coincidence, Mr. Malden asks? He says, I suspect not, answering his own question. So when the Fed started cutting rates in July, funding pressures emerged. Why? Because foreign investors said, I don't like investing at these interest rates. I need to have more. Now, Malden concludes that through QE4 and other activities, it sure looks like the Fed is taking the first steps toward monetizing our debt. If so, many steps are ahead because the debt is only going to get worse. Now, if you look at the word monetize, it's really a verb that simply means to create money. Foreigners recognize this and are dumping U.S. dollar-denominated assets. As Malden notes, this year there's been selling, net selling of U.S. Treasuries of $99 billion, while seven years ago there was net buying of more than $400 billion. If you look at the other options, I agree with Mr. Malden. The money creation or monetization, whatever verb you want to use, is likely to continue and moving to more tangible assets in one's portfolio is something that many investors should consider. And I would encourage you, if you've not already done so, to get a copy of our 2020 forecast issue. It talks about this in detail. If you'd like to get a copy, call during business hours at the office. It's 866-921-3613. We'll be glad to get you a copy of the 2020 forecast issue. Again, the phone number, 866 921 Three six one three, and we will be glad to mail you a free copy of our 2020 forecast issue and you can learn not only more about these threats but also some steps that you might take to protect yourself again the number 866-921-3613. welcome back to rla radio i'm your host dennis tubergen joining me on today's program is returning guest dr chris martinson uh Chris actually is the author of the book The Crash Course, which was written quite a few years ago, but uh, it was almost like a prophecy based on uh, what's playing out today, so I would encourage you to check it out. His most recent book he co-authored is called Prosper, and uh, his site has lots of terrific resources. PeakProsperity.com is the website, PeakProsperity.com. And Chris, welcome back to the program.
1: Thank you, Dennis. It's a real pleasure to be back with you today.
0: Chris, let's uh, jump in here, and uh, we always like to talk about monetary policy because it seems like uh, central planning is uh, really what runs our world and our economy, and uh, the Federal Reserve has been, uh, whether you want to call it that or not, they've been manufacturing some more currency, uh, it looks like maybe to uh, help out some banks. Uh, What's your take?
1: Yeah, this is a really interesting story because uh, it's a tale of two worlds. One, we can see by their actions that the Federal Reserve is very concerned. They're throwing in uh, emergency amounts of money, uh, both on the overnight market and the 14-day market, and more permanently, um, 60 billion a month to their permanent holdings. So, so it's really it's just a massive amount of money. And on the other story that we have to absorb is the Fed saying eh, everything's pretty good. It's just a little some plumbing issues. Don't worry about it. Um, but clearly, for everybody I talk to, two things are, are also emerging there. One, they're saying this is a much bigger deal than is being advertised. And two, nobody really has a good bead on what that actually is. I, I talk with people who are very deep in the system. Some of them think they might know. Others have different opinions. I haven't found three people who've said, here's what's happening, and it lines up. So it's a little murky. And I think that's cause for concern because it's it's never comforting When so much is hinged on people's faith in the Federal Reserve to get it all right, but people can't even agree on what they're up to, except they're in some kind of emergency mode, and we don't know exactly why.
0: Yeah, and Chris, just for our listeners maybe that aren't necessarily familiar with what the overnight market is, what the 14-day market is, and the the permanent, um, can, can you just on a very basic level explain what you mean?
1: Sure, these are these are all ridiculous terms that nobody should have to know what they are. But here we are at the end of fifty years of financialization and most people make money with money instead of making things, you know, like GE used to do or GM or whatever. So in this world of financialization, there's a bunch of arcane stuff happening and things it might happen, here's an example. A company might say, Oh, I buy mortgage backed securities, right? It's debt paper, it pays four and a half percent interest, it's good stuff. But I fund it by borrowing um, short term money from the, the system, right? And so that overnight market would be a place where really big players could come in and borrow money for the Fed funds rate. We'll call it 2%. So if you can borrow at 2% but be earning 4.5%, this is a sweet gig. Everything is totally awesome. The problem comes in, you, those, those monies you're borrowing are really short term. It might be overnight, it might be a 14 day note. You borrow a billion dollars, but in 14 days you have to pay it back, and then you have to borrow it back over again right? So um, those things have to have, be continuously rolling, continuously moving, and it's a huge market. Trillions of dollars are flipping in and out of that, uh, that short-term market all the time, mostly to support a lot of those financial activities I just described. You're, you're borrowing cheap, and you're lending it out at a slightly higher rate, and you make the spread. So at any rate, um, that is the, uh, that's the market right there. And so the Fed has stepped in and been providing overnight paper, meaning they're supplying liquidity, the, up to $70, $80 billion a night to people who need that, that night, to get through the night, um, you know, with their with their funding needs. As well, they're doing 14-day uh, loans, they're doing 28-day loans, and then they're also doing a permanent loan. So what a mess, uh, you know, more than your, your listeners probably wanted to know, but it's, it's the part of the plumbing that I look at when I want to know uh, what kind of stresses are in the system right now.
0: And, and Chris, when you look at this overnight market, I mean, um, at least – way back when traditionally this was a market that banks really just loaned each other money overnight to meet their reserve requirements and and now you know this this whole thing has expanded to include uh other players as i understand it you can correct me if uh, you have a, a a different view but but isn't this really just abusing the system
1: well it, it really is it's a lot of games and shenanigans and um and, you know, you mentioned that, that the overnight market used to just be for banks to settle across each other because the banks have reserve requirements. So I'm a bank. I've got a lot of loans outstanding. I've got liabilities and assets on my books. But, oops, I need to have a billion dollars uh, on my books at 12 o'clock at night when the regulators take their snapshot and say, do you have what you need to have? Now, before the great financial crisis started, there were only maybe mm, 8 to $10 billion of, of overnight fundings happening and uh tons of excess reserves you know weren't needed. Now the Fed is saying, "Well, geez, we only have one point four trillion dollars in excess reserves. It's not quite enough, so we need to step in uh politely. that's complete b s uh you know if you If we used to be able to run the system with thirty billion or eight billion dollars of money for the overnights, and now we can't get it done with hundred and eighty times as much uh it it's clearly not the amount that's the problem. There's something else going on. And here's the number one reason, Dennis, that people, banks, do not lend to each other overnight, is they don't trust each other. So I'm reading this as there's some sort of breach of trust. Somebody's in trouble somewhere. I just don't know who yet, right? Is it a, is it a big, giant bank? Is it one of these shadowy financial firms? We don't know. But it's pretty clear something, somebody got in trouble, and now they're trying to fix it, and they're not, they don't want to tell us what it is because they don't like to spook the people or the markets.
0: And, and and Chris, when you look at uh, you know derivatives, uh, to, to your uh, in your opinion, how much of this could be related to uh, some of the derivatives that, that banks are holding in, in quantities much greater than prior to the financial crisis?
1: Well, it it, it obviously is going to be tied in somehow, some way, because it's very rare for any one of these financial products like a mortgage-backed security. Uh, to exist all on its own without having related derivatives sort of slung all over it right so there might be a credit default swap on that on that mortgage-backed security there might be something called an interest rate swap all kinds of stuff all this fancy stuff but as as you mentioned these derivatives are very large they're really opaque nobody really has a clue on on how that um, derivative market will function if we get into a crisis so this is my summary of everything we've been talking about. The Fed just doesn't even want to allow anything that might look like a crisis happening because my suspicion is they're as much in the dark as anybody about what's really going on because the beast that they have funded and fed and nurtured is – I call them the Franken markets. They're, they're just – on there you can't understand them anymore they're so complex and uh cross-linked and global and lightning fast computers and all that stuff so i think the fed's in a position of saying you know the first sign of trouble we're just going to bring out the heavy uh fire hoses and hose everything down because we just can't have any, any we can't have anything start and and that makes me nervous too because um it means that our system is potentially more fragile than is being talked about
0: chris when when all this unwinds when the when the Money creation i think I think Chairman Powell said uh, don't call what we 're doing quantitative easing, even though that's really what yeah. it is um, you know when when all this unwinds, when the money creation doesn't work anymore, um, what does that unwinding or reset look like in your view?
1: Well, this is what I think actually you've got your finger right on it. This is what the fed's afraid of, and and if I'm in their shoes, I 'm afraid of it too. so what's happened is we've had three giant credit bubbles in the past twenty years we had one that Terminated in March of 2000. We had another that broke in October of 2008. And here we are again. And they just don't want this one to break. It's much larger than the prior ones. And so, what happens when a credit bubble finally bursts is you find out how much bad debt is actually out there. And there's a lot of it. I can tell you that right now there's probably close to a quarter trillion dollars of bad debt just sitting in the U.S. shale space. Corporations are more leveraged than they've ever been before. We know that there's about $9 trillion of, of debt and loans sitting on the books of, of major corporations. We know that one out of eight, that's 12% of um, all companies is a zombie company, meaning they're, they need to keep refinancing their debt um, just to keep their debt from going under. That Their operational income is not sufficient to even meet their debt service payments. Interest payment. So, so for all these reasons, at the end of a credit cycle, you find out, wow, one in eight companies is not viable. You know, they were only viable because they had access to more and more credit at cheaper and cheaper terms. Uh, you find out that you know the massive leveraging of corporate uh, balance sheets, where they basically did a debt for equity swap. They went into debt to buy their own shares back. That's a debt for equity swap. So they did that. And, of course, that's a lot of fun on the way up, and it's oh, so painful on the way down, you know, because you have to do that in reverse. Um, but you know, it always is more expensive in reverse than, than on the way up. And on and on and on. So, so the Fed's desperately trying, Dennis, not to have this credit bubble burst or stop. They want more credit always in the system, you know. But the problem here is that the credit up to this point has been growing two to three times faster than the underlying economy. That's unsustainable. They've been fingers crossed behind their back saying, ah, please, GDP growth, come back. But it hasn't, and it won't for a lot of reasons that we've discussed before. Too much debt, you know, um, resources, all kinds of things. We just It's not going to grow like it used to. So that's the trap they're in right now. And if it does break, it gets pretty ugly pretty quick.
0: You know, Chris, when you said one out of eight companies is a zombie company, I think that's got to be shocking to a lot of the listeners. And that's not something that's widely discussed. Um, any any big companies in the in in that twelve uh, percent or so?
1: You know, I, I haven't dug down to find out who exactly is in there. That's data from the um, BIS, which is the Bank of International Settlements, the big you know the bankers' bank out of Switzerland. So they came out with that shocking report last year, and they said, oh, you know, they're looking across the entire universe of, of companies. I would suspect that most of those are on the smaller end of the scale. You know, out of the Wilshire five thousand, you're probably talking most of them are smaller, but you will find a lot of larger companies also in there uh you know as time goes on particularly if you get a recession or something that really you know pinches revenues and things like that that's when again you discover you know who's been swimming naked who's over who's you know who who's not an ongoing concern but it that is a concerning number absolutely
0: chris uh you have the peak prosperity seminar coming up in sepastopol california May 1 to 3 of 2020. Uh, why don't you tell the listeners about it and how they might get more information?
1: It, this is our annual seminar. It's been getting better and better. It's just a lot of fun. We've got great featured speakers. And what we do there, Dennis, is, is we bring together a, a large tribe of people who think about these things we're talking about, as well as looking at things in energy and the environment or ecological side, big systems view. And then we, we, we talk about, well, what can you do about that? And we organize our seminar around what we call eight forms of capital. And financial capital, very important. It's just one of them. And we also talk about the importance of things like building your social capital and your living capital and your emotional capital. So for people who look at the world the way we do, we say, could be some disruptions coming. How can I be as resilient as possible? Our view is you should be rich across all eight forms of capital that that we talk about. And so we bring in experts and workshops and things about how you – live into this world as happily as you can, uh, given the risks we see.
0: Well, the website is peakprosperity.com. I'd encourage you to check it out, and we will return after these words, and I'll continue my conversation with Dr. Chris Martinson. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me today on the program is Dr. Chris Martinson. He is the author of Crash Course. Uh, He is also the co-author of his most recent book, Prosper, and I encourage you to check out the website at peakprosperity.com. I do frequently. There are a lot of really great resources there. And I noticed that, uh, Adam Taggart from your organization, Chris wrote a piece, uh, titled living on borrowed time. And given what we just talked about in the last segment, uh, that certainly seems to be the case. Um, what, uh, what's your outlook for the U S economy? You mentioned in the last segment that, you know, we're not going to get the same economic growth that, uh, it seems we've been getting, um, What's your premise for that, for that uh, perspective?
1: Well, a couple of pieces in here. First, just economically. Uh, high levels of debt are really hard to operate around, and they always pinch your growth. We've got 5,000 years of data that sort of backs all of that up. And uh, here we are again with massive amounts of debt. And in the United States, it's not just the debt, but also the IOUs, the unfunded or underfunded entitlement programs and pensions and things like that. So we've got a lot of debt, just a huge amount, household, corporate, state, federal, local. I mean, it's just all piled up. And so it's hard to achieve higher levels of growth past that for a couple of math reasons. One of them is that if you've been growing your credit at 10 percent a year, you have to grow it at a higher rate than that next year in order for that not to actually chew into or destroy your GDP growth. Right? So so if you've been growing at ten percent, now you need eleven percent, and then you need twelve, and then you need fourteen, then you need twenty, you know, you need just increasing amounts of credit growth. And so from a math perspective, we just say, well that's not possible. You know, that stops at some point. We all I think intuitively can grasp that. So we have that going on and um, and as well uh, the vast mistakes and blunders of the Federal Reserve in they picked winners and losers. They are not a wealth creating entity and organization. Um, they are a redistributive organization and they're reverse Robin Hood. So they printed a lot of money. They made financial assets go up in price. This preferentially went to the 0.1 percent. But that came at a cost and it sucked the economic oxygen away from pretty much 99 percent on down. And we see that in the data now, right? You know, half of all households don't have four hundred dollars for an emergency and you know, falling further behind, the wealth gap's getting wider, the income gap is getting wider. That's because the Federal Reserve picked winners and losers, and they said, gosh, if we have to pick anybody, we're going to throw the entire middle class and upper middle class under the bus, and we're going to pick the 1% as the winners in this story, and good things should happen. Well, they were wrong, as usual, um, and so uh, the reason we can't have fast growth right now is the, the federal government is already deficit spending at about 6% of GDP, If they were in the Maastricht Treaty in in the EU, they'd have been clubbed back to 3% a long time ago. We would be in a powerful recession here right now. Um, So I don't think the federal government has a lot of room to advance its its fiscal deficit spending. I don't think they're going to be able to do that here in 2020 because of the fractured politics we have. I don't think there are going to be a lot of Democrats that are going to be willing to open um, the shovel-ready projects to uh, help goose the economy into uh, November so that Trump can win again. So I think that's going to be just a battle. And uh, I don't see anything on the organic growth side here that says uh, the floodgates are about to, to open up again. So it just says you know headwinds. Hey, guess what? <laughs> We're at the tail end of a very long expansion. So just for timing reasons, uh, you know all all great all great expansions come to an end. This one was kind of weak, but it was also kind of long. Um, so for these reasons, I, I don't I don't right now have in my hot little hands any data that says. Uh, there's a lot of green shoots in the story there's a couple but there's a lot of withered shoots to to counterbalance that
0: Chris in your book The Crash Course you talk about um, how the inflation rate uh, calculation methodology has changed over the years to make the real inflation rate look more palatable Um, and you know when you look at the GDP numbers um, and understand that those are inflation adjusted Um, If you account for debt accumulation and the real inflation rate, I've heard people argue that, uh, you know, we really haven't had any growth in GDP. We've just kind of changed the numbers. What would your take be?
1: Well, excellent question, and and two takes on that. First, uh, the inflation numbers are completely bogus. Um, For instance, I can tell you the federal government tells me that medical inflation for this uh, past year was 3.1%. I will tell you that my health care premium, again, went up 23 percent and it's a very common story right so that's bogus that's that couldn't even be possibly more bogus um and uh and um so uh with that you mentioned a really big thing though which is the debt accumulation and i don't understand for the life of me why that isn't factored out of gdp so if i have time for just a a quick example let's imagine dennis that you and i are each earning hundred thousand dollars you're an economy I'm an economy. We measure each of our GDP, and we go, "Wow, hundred thousand dollar economies!" Right? Next year, I, I, I'm just—I just, I, I just got to have this boat. I have to have this boat, Dennis. So I, I borrow a hundred thousand dollars and I buy a boat with it. And you just trundle along, and you, you have the same hundred thousand dollar economy. At the end of that second year, we take a snapshot, a GDP snapshot. Mine looks fantastic. I grew my GDP by a hundred percent, right? Because <laughs> I earned 100000 I spent an additional 100000 and all the economists are clapping for me because I have a 100% growth in my economy, but you, boo, hiss, 0%, you know? The problem in this story, of course, is that when you go forward in time, my economy is now struggling because I now have to pay back that 100000 I just borrowed, and this would account for the lower growth rates and all sorts of things. So they never factor the debt out, and they pretend as if borrowing and spending is the same thing, Is growing your economy but it's not because you grow your economy with investments with savings with productivity enhancements with population growth those are the things those are the underlying drivers but we got addicted to debt uh, splurges that make things look better this quarter this month this year that kind of stuff so that's why i'm a big critic of the whole debt thing and, and you put your finger right on it you know if you don't back out the impact of debt accumulation you get a false view of your GDP that's overly rosy.
0: So, Chris, just to maybe use an example that a lot of our listeners may be familiar with, if anybody's got a credit card, there's a spending limit on that credit card. In other words, you can borrow and, you know, live a very nice lifestyle on borrowed money until you hit the credit limit. And it seems to me that that's what we are collectively doing. And my question for you using that analogy is, uh, do you think we're near or approaching that credit limit?
1: That's a tougher one because the credit limit, you know, obviously I would say yes if we had normal normal markets and, and operations. But all the central banks got so spooked by the great financial crisis that they've been busy buying each other's debt, and they don't have a credit limit because they just, you know, manufacture credit out of I'd say thin air, but it's a couple clicks on a keyboard. So there's uh, pretty much no limit to what the central banks can print until such time as. The faith is lost in that system until things break down a little bit, until inflation rears, until something happens where they can't just um, be buying each other's debt endlessly and and doing that. And and I wish, you know, if we had full accounting and we had an actual audit that we could trust, I think we'd get a very different view of exactly what's going on. And I think we deserve that because, you know, the Fed is not this federal agency that's busy doing the best and highest good for the land. It's a private entity. They've got their humans. So conflict of interest always arise. And I think we should know if they are doing things that impact the public under the public trust, such as printing money and buying certain things and you know, all of that, that, that we should have some insight into what they're doing just to be sure that the very normal human tendency to self-deal and funnel you know, deals this way and that way isn't happening. And also to be sure that we actually understand the full sweep of what they're doing because the consequences are so dire – if they get it wrong, I think some oversight besides trust us, you know, we're bankers. uh, I think we need more than that. And we deserve more.
0: Chris, last topic for today, where the clock goes by so fast when we're talking. Uh, But you know, you'd mentioned that until faith is lost in the system. And it just seems to me that when you look at just take the United States national debt, Now, just just forget the unfunded liabilities. When you do that, you get a, a big, big number. It just seems to me that that problem cannot be solved by raising taxes, despite all the rhetoric about taxing billionaires. There's only a couple options. One, you you cut spending to the point that we get into a extreme deflationary type environment, or you keep printing money, in which case some some really bad things happen. So um, what happens, and assuming they keep printing money, uh, do they stop when we get inflation, or do we see the Chinese renminbi eventually as the world reserve currency?
1: Well, that that may happen, but you you again put your finger right on it. Look, the, when you look at the combined balances of the United States, just federal government, uh, overall debt plus those IOUs, there's only one question that has to be resolved once you understand how big those are, and that question is this: Who's going to eat the losses, right? So, okay, we we try and shoulder taxpayers with it, but is, once you run the math, you realize there isn't any amount of taxes you can levy that can possibly cover the shortfall. So, I guess we're just going to cut. Um, you know benefits to people. Uh, you know social security checks get cut in half, or you know we we can't do Medicare anymore, or whatever the story is, right? Which ends up uh, that the losses then fall to the people who are counting on or depending on uh, those services, right? Or uh, most likely, what happens? So well, that's very unpopular. That's not going to happen because people get voted out of office instantly when they uh, do things like create austerity for uh, their constituents. So what's going to happen instead is they'll, they'll print because that now kind of shares that like everybody loses. But still, you know, when you add it all up at at the end, you discover that um, those unmeetable obligations still weren't met. It was just it was not met with uh, inflated currency. So most people couldn't really detect what happened. But, you know, you discover that your Social Security check has gone up by 50 percent. That feels good. But inflation has gone up by 200 percent. And that doesn't feel good. And you lost. So that's the only question that has to be resolved at this point is who's going to eat the losses And that battle is mostly happening out of sight. I'm glad you're having this radio program because people need to know about it. And the general answer is taxpayers and beneficiaries. That's usually who the banks and politicians like to push those losses off to. Federal Reserve is busy trying to stoke inflation specifically for this reason. They know the debts are unpayable. Under an inflationary regime, what happens is uh, those debts become more payable, but actually uh, that's at the expense of the people who are eating the loss of purchasing power. Because that's, that's the story. The purchasing power has to come from somewhere. You can't print it out of thin air, but you can print up uh, alternative claims on what purchasing power actually exists. That's what we call inflation. I'm pretty sure that's what's coming. Um, I know that's the plan. Sometimes plans don't survive first contact with the enemy. We may go down a deflationary path, but again, I think it's more likely inflation than deflation at this point.
0: I would agree. Our guest today has been Dr. Chris Martinson. Most recent book is Prosper, and I would encourage you to check out uh, peakprosperity.com to learn about the Peak Prosperity Seminar to be held May 1-3, 2020 in Sebastopol, California. Chris, thanks for joining us today. We always enjoy having you on the program. Dennis, it's been my pleasure. We will be back after these words. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. Thanks again to Dr. Chris Martinson for joining us on today's program. If you've not yet checked out Dr. Martinson's work at peakprosperity.com, I would encourage you to check it out. You know, prior to the financial crisis going back more than a decade ago, there were a lot of banks engaging in subprime mortgage lending. What does that mean exactly? Well, the term subprime when used in this context, really just means that the banks were lending money to folks that had less than stellar credit, folks that under more normal circumstances might not have qualified for the loan to begin with. And eventually, as you all know, that was one of the reasons that saw the banking issues and saw the financial sector uh, in a position where the taxpayers had to bail them out. Well, according to a recent article, the auto industry verified income on just 7% of loans that have been issued since 2017. So on the auto loan applications that were made since 2017, only 7% of those applications had the income of the applicant verified. What could possibly go wrong? Let me give you just a little bit from the article. The auto industry in 2019 is starting to look a lot like the subprime mortgage market in 2007. And incidentally, this article can be found on Zero Hedge. One example of such an industry, excuse me, one such example of an industry trying to move vehicle inventory by any means necessary was Myrna Lopez, a 65-year-old, who was able to buy a 2018 Nissan Pathfinder on monthly earnings of just $660 her car's loan payment was going to be 809. Now, how is this possible? The Wall Street Journal reports that an employee at the dealership that sold her the car simply listed her monthly earnings at $7,833. Nothing creative, nothing fancy, just plain old fraud. See, it's no longer good enough for customers to be buying cars with debt only. Now, while the the auto industry struggles to pull itself out of the recession, it is mired in some dealerships around the country are dressing up loan applications with fake incomes, according to consumer lawyers. Additionally, some large lenders have cut back on safeguards that could catch the fraudulent applications. Now, the result is usually a quick default on these loans and customers destroying their credit. Now, arguably, a woman with income of $660 a month should be inherently aware of the fact that an $809 car payment is too much. Even if you're going to be living in the car, it's too much. Now, Richard Pfefferman, a New Mexico lawyer who was quoted in the article, has sued dealerships over this practice. He was quoted as saying the consequence for a lot of people is to ruin them financially for 5 to 10 years. The amount of false applications is hard to quantify according to Point Predictive, which sells software to detect loan fraud. The company estimates that more than 20% of loans have inflated incomes. Incorrect data listed on the application. Data that lenders are using to determine whether or not they want to make the loan. And this data, according to Point Predictive, is wrong 20% of the time. Of course, dealers have the option to ask for documentation to prove income. But according to the article, over the past few years, some subprime lenders have stopped checking them, partly in response to dealers demanding faster decisions. In fact, lenders verified income on only about 7% of all loans since 2017, as I stated. This is reminiscent of what happened prior to the financial crisis. When you could go get a no money down mortgage, you could get a favorable interest rate, and all you had to do was show a check stub. Nobody was going to check your credit score. What happened? Foreclosures upon foreclosures. What's going to happen with the auto industry? More defaults are coming. This will really slow down auto moving ahead. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Ryan Kaji to shift gears for a minute. Ryan Kaji is eight years old. Ryan probably out-earned, maybe not every one of our listeners, but Ryan probably earned a lot more than the vast majority of our listeners, all but maybe one or two. Why? Why? Ryan made $26 million last year. Now, how does an eight-year-old pocket $26 million in one year? And by the way, my source for this article is Forbes magazine. Well, it wasn't multiple paper routes, as you might guess. If you're going to pocket $500,000 a week, you have to do something other than deliver papers if you're eight years old. Ryan spent last year reviewing toys on YouTube. Ryan's YouTube channel is called Ryan's World, and it has more than 22 million subscribers. Ryan just opens up the boxes containing the, the toys on camera. Then he unpacks the toy and comments on it. It's all you need to do to make $26 million a year. Now, Ryan was number one in earnings, but... A five-year-old by the name of Anastasia Radzinskaya came in third place, making $18 million a year. How does it feel to potentially be out-earned by a five-year-old? Now, what does Anastasia do? Well, Anastasia was born in southern Russia, and she appears in videos with her father. According to Forbes, she has 107 million subscribers across seven channels, and her videos have been watched 42 billion times. And what did she do? Well, one of her most successful videos was filmed on a trip to a petting zoo where she and her dad danced to Baby Shark. Now, Dude Perfect is a group of five friends in their 30s who play sports and perform stunts. They came in second place behind the eight-year-old toy reviewer and just ahead of the five-year-old dancer. These guys play sports and perform stunts. They made 20 million. So there are a lot of ways to make money. That's just one of them. So maybe a YouTube channel is in your future. Hey, I wanna take just a minute as I close here today to thank you for listening, Uh, wishing you a terrific and prosperous 2020. And to help you potentially reach those goals, I'd like to invite you to give the office a call and get our 2020 forecast issue. We believe this could be a year where there are a lot of financial crossroads, and you're going to want to be aware of all the potential threats and strategies that exist to counter them. I'd invite you to give the office a call at 866-921-3613. We would be glad to send you a copy of our 2020 forecast issue. Again, the number is 866-921-3613. You'll want to call during business hours. We'll just need your name and address, and we'll send you a copy of the forecast issue. And yet, we'll send it old-fashioned paper and ink, not email. We'd be glad to do that. It's our way of helping you uh, protect yourself, and it's our way of getting the message out that we feel very strongly about. So again, the office number, 866-921-3613, and we'd be glad to get you out a copy of our forecast issue for 2020. It's all the time I have for this week. We'll be back again next week.